Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So before I read, let me just kind of give you the whole point of what today is about. This short passage that we're going to read today is about Jesus sending out the 12 disciples or apostles for the first time kind of on their own missionary sort of endeavor away from him. Okay, he, they've been with him. He's called them to himself. And this, for the first time, Jesus is now sending them out to go and to actually proclaim the gospel for themselves. They've seen Jesus do it. They've been with him when he has done it. And now he's sending them out. And so this fits into a larger sort of storyline of the Christian life and of the Bible. And so I want to give you just three quick points and a summary statement that will help to frame where we are and what this passage is about. And so the first thing is, is that, and I hope you understand this, we talk about this all the time, is that the, the, really the, the bottom line message of the Bible is that Jesus saves his people. And we'll have these written up on the screen for you just very quickly. Jesus saves his people. So that's the whole point of human history, that God the Father, through Jesus Christ, is reconciling a people to himself through Jesus' life, his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his resurrection, his victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. So, so through Jesus, God saves his people. And then he doesn't just save them to sort of be individual Christians. He then unites his people. So Jesus unites his people into his body into what we call the church, into this great global sort of capital C church. So we're not the only Christians in the world, praise God. There's Christians all over the world from, from uh, centuries ago, people that have passed on. There's this great universal witness of people that are trusting in Jesus of every different tribe and tongue and flavor and style and nation and color and and, and uh, worship style and preaching style and uh, denomination. There's people that are part of this great, grand, global body of Christ, the church. But that church finds its expression in uh, local churches like us. And so to, to be saved by Jesus is to be part of this church, and you should be part of a local church. And then finally, and this is what we're centering on today, is that Jesus doesn't just save people and unite them together as a body, his church. He then sends them out on mission. Jesus sends his people to actually be witnesses of his glory and his work so that others might be saved. And so, a sort of summary message of a summary statement of everything that we're going to look at today. To be a Christian is to be in community and on mission for Jesus. That's what today is about. To be a Christian is to be in community with other believers and to be on mission in some context, whatever that may look like in its many different ways in every individual's life, to be on mission for Jesus. So to be a Christian is to be in community on mission for Jesus. Has got that? That's really it. You want me to stop there, or should I elaborate a little bit? All right, I'll keep going a little bit. Okay. Well, let me, let me give us three or four things that I think hinder us before I read the Scripture and pray uh, when we talk about mission. I think that um, some things that sometimes get in our way is that we believe that there's a, a certain level of, of sort of expert preparedness that we need to actually be used by God on mission. Well, that's for the people that really know a lot about the Bible or that have been Christians for a long time. It's a false assumption. 
Two, I think sometimes we are hindered by this mindset that evangelism or the ability to witness is a, a spiritual gift that only some have. And while I'll agree that some people maybe are more gifted in uh, persuading others to trust in Christ than others, it's a command that is for every believer, not just some believers. Um, another mindset that is a false assumption that hinders us from thinking about being sent by Jesus in our context is that we think that to be sent or on mission for Jesus applies sort of faraway places. Like we've thought about this morning already, Joey Ellis, a faraway place, or David Blanchard in Brazil. We think about missionaries that are funded by a church and sent away to these foreign peoples. And certainly that's part of it, but, but there's this personal responsibility that all of us have as Christians. And, and finally, I think this is probably the most, uh, the most subconscious, but probably the most dangerous uh, false assumption that many of us have, and we are particularly vulnerable to it as, as Americans, is that we live and breathe the air of consumerism. And so we, we kind of grow up in this world where we are habitual customers. And we actually bring that mentality to not only the church, but we bring that mentality to God and his word. And the American way of life has turned us into hoarders rather than servers. And it causes us to maybe even some subconsciously or consciously at times worship this sort of idol of being served, whether it's good teaching or Bible studies or the word or music that we like or whatever, and we sort of bow down to this idol of our own comfort rather than seeing ourselves as here for a purpose to be on mission. So with that as a, as a background, let me read Mark 6, Mark 6, 7 through 13, and I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll look at this passage. Verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, as we come now to your word and Mark's account of the gospel, the life and work of Jesus, specifically this passage which describes for us how Jesus sent out the twelve on their first journey on mission, to proclaim the gospel. I pray that you would help us think deeply about what it means for us as Christians in community to be on mission. I pray that we would be humbled. I pray that our hearts would break for people that do not know Jesus. I pray that the, the reality and the truth of the gospel and eternity would seize us. I pray that Christians would be strangely convicted and encouraged at the same time. I pray, Lord, for people in this room that are not yet believers in Jesus, that by your kindness, Lord, you might even use our gathering together 
to consider what it means to be on mission for Jesus, that you might even use this worship gathering of your people to be a witness, that you might cause them to hear the words of life from your Bible and that you would give unbelievers present a new heart so that they can turn from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus. Lord, would you be so kind as to do that today? And I pray these things for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to make six observations about this brief paragraph about Jesus sending out these first disciples on mission. And then I want us to wrestle with what it means for us today as believers in Columbus, Georgia, or Fort Benning, Georgia, or Phoenix, Alabama, Phoenix City, Alabama, or Harris County, to be sent out on mission. What does that mean for us today? But six observations about how Jesus sends. The first is, I want us to notice that Jesus sends ordinary and incomplete people. I mean, don't just blow past the fact that these 12 are somehow some spectacular group of guys. That's not been the, the, the storyline up to this point. The, these, these 12 men, as we have read, have, have done a few things. In chapter 1, we read that they misunderstood Jesus and his need to pray and connect with God, and they were trying to rush him away from praying. And in chapters 4 and 5, we read where the, these 12 became exasperated with Jesus they doubted him when their storm came on the water and they tried to move him away from this woman with the issue of blood that Will preached on a few Sundays ago. And they, they completely missed the boat. And then in chapter 3, they actually opposed him and thought along with his family that he was crazy. And so you've got these, this little merry band, this motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors and, and zealots and people that Jesus has gathered together that you would have never thought would have come together. Otherwise, they have not had exactly what we would call a stellar record up to this point. And yet, in their relative seemingly unpreparedness and incomplete state, Jesus sends them on mission. I mean, just a few chapters ago, they were, they were telling Jesus he was crazy. And Jesus sends these people. These ordinary, incomplete people out on mission, I find that strangely and incredibly encouraging. Um, I mean, we're, we're a room full of ordinary and incomplete people, and those are the type of people that Jesus sends on mission. Secondly, we see that Jesus sends them in community. Now, granted, this community is originally only 12, and then he sends them out two by two, but I think there's something here that's, that's very important, that Jesus sends them together, not as lone rangers to sort of be the guy that, that closes the deal for the gospel. And then we see this pattern in the book of Acts. We see where uh, the early church in Acts chapter 2, as a community, is a witness to an onlooking world. They're gathered together in each other's homes, and, and then they collectively together, not as individuals with a singular spiritual gift, but as people together in community doing life in a countercultural way as a witness to the preferability of God and his way to an onlooking world in community become a corporate witness of the glory of God. And so mission is to be done together with other Christians in 
community. That was, in fact, that was the main point that we started off with. To be a Christian is to be in community on mission for Jesus. And let me just pause here and say, as Springer uh, stated before, I really encourage you, although today is more not just about supporting foreign missions, it's about living a life in our context on mission, but one way that we become much more effective in mission for Jesus, to be a witness for his glory, is to be in a local church that does things like support missionaries and thinks about how other we can come alongside other gospel-centered organizations in our city, like, like the church in Bibb City, Highland Community Church, and like other organizations like Young Life and Teen Advisors and other people that are ministering the gospel. One of the ways that we do that more effectively together is by being part of a local church that pools our resources so that we can bless and pray for and help to finance these organizations. And so, so another just little plug to, to to jump on what Springer said, to, to come. We want you to come. Part of being a Christian is to be on mission with other people, your local church, for Jesus. And a big part of that is to come that last weekend of January and consider how we together can be more effective and how we together can be a place that is a launching pad for people being called to give their lives away, not only to the gospel in their cubicle at Tesis or Aflac or Synovus, but to give their lives away to people on the other side of the earth that have never heard the name of Jesus, like Jeremy and Samantha Orlich are doing and will do in, Lord willing, a year or two when they go across the world to Central Asia to be full-time missionaries from this church. My dream is, is that God would send, over the course of how many ever decades God gives me to serve here, countless people to not only give their lives away in the cubicle in downtown Columbus, but in mission fields far, far away, sent by a group of people together who are leaning forward, not into comfort or just gleaning more knowledge, but who are leaning forward into the great reality that to be a Christian is to be in community on mission. So come, come this last weekend of January and make that a priority. Thirdly, we see that Jesus sends them dependent. Not just dependent on each other in groups, but strangely dependent, seemingly lacking resources. Let's look at that again, verse, verse, uh, verse 8 and 9. It says that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, I don't think that this is, when you read scripture, I think sometimes you have to, there's wise interpretive tools that we can look at it and say, well, this is a historical narrative of what happened and how Jesus commanded these particular men. I don't think that this particular verse is, a prescription, or in other words, a mandate on how all missionaries should go out. So I think it's a wise thing for us to uh, help financially support the Orliches as they raise money. I, I don't want to send Jeremy and Samantha to Central Asia with uh, their, at that time, two children and say, don't, I'm sorry, man, just go to the airport and see if anybody will buy your ticket. I, I don't think that's particularly wise. So, so what is Jesus doing here? I think he's He's teaching the disciples and he's teaching the church through the ages 
That yes, it might be wise in our context to help to fund a foreign missionary or to fund a local gospel-centered project, but the point is, is that we need to be acutely aware of how dependent we are on our ability to just kind of make things happen and fund it, and how that can absolutely siphon off our dependence on God and make us, make us think that the power is in the resource or in the fact that we're Americans or the fact that we've got stuff. And in this example, and in this teaching moment for the ages of the church, Jesus is sending these 12 out, stripping them down to the bare essentials, forcing them to place their trust in Jesus and not on resources. Contrast that with the predominant mentality of American church culture. And another thing he tells them to do is he says in verse 10, he says, uh, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. What's going on there? I think he's telling them, when you go to a house, and maybe the lowest income person there is gracious enough to receive you, and it seems like your ministry starts to be taking root in that city or in that whatever, in that little hamlet or that village, and now some influential people come, don't like tape the upgrade to the higher neighborhood. Right? The gospel is not a sort of platform for personal success. So if you get welcomed in by the, the low-status guy, be gracious and stay there. Don't, don't use your ministry that might be having some sort of success in that particular city as a sort of upgrade. So you start out in the, you know, the outhouse, and by the end of your time in that particular village, you, you end up in you know, the, the condominium in the, up on the top floor. Don't use the success of ministry that you may have in that place as a sort of social ladder. That Jesus sends them dependent. Fourthly, we see that, and this is so important, Jesus sends them to actually speak and proclaim the gospel and then to commend that gospel with action. So Jesus sends them to speak and act. Look at, look at the last verse there, or verses 12 and 13. Actually, let's back it up to verse 11. Um, it says, he says, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, in other words, there's speaking going on there, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. That was their message. Hi, I'm Peter. You don't know me, but you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't quite that abrasive. But that they got to that gospel proclamation. It wasn't, hi, we've got a new sort of philosophy or morality for you to improve your life. Here, here's three ways to, to make your life more fulfilling. They came with the rugged, clear gospel truth that all the world needs to hear because this is the problem with mankind. We're trusting in ourselves. They come with this gracious message of love to turn away from yourself and turn in trust to Jesus. And they, they actually spoke it. And, and yes, they backed up what they spoke by, by caring for the people, by, by in this case having the authority and power of Jesus to cast out demons and heal the sick. Now again, I don't think this means that we can expect that our missionary efforts will always be accompanied with such signs and miracles. 
although certainly I believe Jesus still can do those things and does in his sovereign grace at times do those things in our age. I think what's going on here in the scripture is that Jesus is authenticating, he's, he's validating the authority of these early disciples with the same power that he has shown in the previous five chapters. And so he's saying, don't only speak it, but care for these people. So Christians, don't only just be the fundamentalist that stands on the city square and shouts to people that they should repent, but, but care for the, the young single pregnant mother who, who needs somebody to come alongside her and, and, and care for the, the poor and, and care for the social outcast. Proclamation is part of what it means to be a Christian on mission. We've probably all been... F- heard or maybe even have a coffee cup that has this little saying on it. And I think it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, although I don't think he actually said it, but whatever, he's getting credit for it. You know that phrase that preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words? Well, that sounds sweet and I have, I have sort of in, in the past sort of affirmed that sentiment. But friends, I think we need to see that that's really not biblical. It's not biblical. Certainly our lives and our actions should commend the gospel that we proclaim. Do you realize that people need to hear the message of what Jesus has done? That's what Romans 10 says. It says that faith comes by hearing the message of the gospel. And and Jesus isn't saying, love these people into the kingdom. He's saying, present the good news of what I have done on who I am, and then commend that message with your love for those people. Friends, what saves people is not our kindness, not our worship, not the helpfulness of our sermons, not our children's ministry, not the effectiveness of any principle that we might glean out of the Bible, but what the world needs and what, the, what saves people that are lost is the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross in his death and his burial and his resurrection and victory over sin and death and all of its consequences. And friends, what the world needs is to turn away from trusting in themselves and turn in faith and trust towards that piece of news, what Jesus has done for them. Do you know that gospel? Can you articulate that? We, when people join the church here at Crosspoint, we sit down with them and we want to ensure that they understand the gospel because I think you can be a Christian. You can actively be trusting in Jesus, but you can maybe not be able to articulate that message well. And if you're not quite clear on what that is, I would encourage you to, to maybe meet with one of the pastors and we'll help you articulate, think about what the gospel is. And it's the good news that we are sinners, that we have all rebelled against God. And God is holy and righteous and just. And we all stand condemned. We all stand very worthy of His just and right wrath. We're not just minimalized. We haven't just sort of um, you know, missed out on our best life. We are enemies of God in our sin, in our natural state. And the good news of the gospel is that instead of leading us in our death and rebellion and separation, God comes to us in Jesus, 
God in the flesh, the perfect God-man, and lives the life that all of us should have lived, but we didn't. We all failed. We disobeyed. And Jesus completely obeys in perfection God's law. And then he lays down his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to absorb the punishment that should have been mine and yours and all those that would ever turn from trusting in themselves and believe in Jesus. And then he dies extinguishing God's wrath and anger for our rebellion and rises again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences. And now, because he is alive, can now give life to his people and give them the ability to turn from themselves in their spiritual death and come alive and trust in Jesus. Friends, that's the gospel. That's the point of the Bible. That's Christianity. Can you, in your own way, articulate that? Friends, that's what people need to hear. That, that good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners for himself, for his glory, is what saves people. That's why Paul writes in Romans 1.16 that it is, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is mighty to save. That's what saves people. Not persuading them by children's ministry, not persuade, by persuading them by the helpfulness of Christianity, not by telling them that their life will be better if they choose Christ because maybe their life will be worse here in, these, in this life. Maybe God will call them, save them, and then send them to give their life away for the sake of the gospel. So maybe their life will really take a downturn. But friends, in eternity, it is the best decision you can ever make. Friends, what saves people is the good news that powerful news of what Jesus has done on the cross that all people everywhere, every boy, every girl, every old person, every young person, every white person, every black person, every brown person, every yellow person, every person with straight hair, curly hair, everybody, everybody that's short or tall or skinny or plump, everybody needs to hear that news. And that's the only way, friend, that's the only way that people can be saved, to turn from trusting in whatever false god or idol or coveting any broken sin, turn from that and look to Jesus and believe that what he did on the cross is the only thing that can make us right with our holy creator God. Friends, that's what people need to hear. And if that's the only thing that saves the gospel, then how important is it for Christians to, to understand and know that and to in some way, in their own way, be able to articulate that good news? And that's exactly what Jesus sends these guys out to do, to speak and proclaim the gospel that we should repent. And then, finally, uh, fourth, fifth and sixth here real quickly before we think about how this applies to us. Jesus sends them knowing they will face rejection. Jesus was rejected by his hometown. We just read that a couple weeks ago in the beginning of Mark chapter 6. How arrogant of Christians to think that if their master and king is rejected that they should receive any different type of treatment. We will face rejection with the message of the gospel. And I think one of the problems with me, I'm not, I'm not going to just throw it on the American church. I do that all the time. Oh, the American church. No, me. One of the problems with me and maybe you is that I have this idol of wanting the acceptance of everybody that I speak to. And when, when you struggle with that idol, you will shave off the offensive parts of the gospel because if the goal, if the thing that you're worshiping is being accepted, then you will do whatever it takes to make it acceptable. But, but friends, that's not what Jesus is calling his 
disciples here and us to do. Listen to what Paul says later on, decades later, in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. Friends, this is a biblical view of evangelism. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we, Christians, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We're for... For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. What does that mean? It means, friends, that we can't save people. That's God's work. And it means that when we are the aroma of Christ and proclaim the good news of the gospel to those whom God is saving, it's the aroma of life. And to those who are rejecting the good news of the gospel, it's the aroma of death. That means that some people are going to hate the gospel. And some people are going to hate you because you believe the gospel. And some people are going to hate this church and every church that holds up the gospel because they are perishing. Friends, that, that is beyond our control, but we should expect that. And finally, the sixth observation is that Jesus sends these early disciples with his authority. He says there in verse 7, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And this authority wasn't some sort of special magic juice card. It was the authority of the word of the gospel the authority of what Jesus has done and who he is. And so Jesus sends them with his authority and he sends all Christians in all ages with that same authority. When he says in the end of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28, go into all the world. He says, all authority has been given to me. Now go into all the world and preach the Gospel. Okay, so what does this mean for us? Just a few thoughts, and then we'll receive communion together. What does this mean for us now? What does it look like for you and me? Now, friends, you know me. I'm not a, I'm not like a, you know, real, and I wish I was more. I'm not the most pragmatic preacher in the world. Um, I wish I could give you, like, better advice sometimes, you know. But I'm just not wired that way. I don't think of, give me three little steps on how to do this. And sometimes I even kind of, ridicule that type of preaching, which I shouldn't, and then my wife gives me kind of a, don't do that, don't get on that, and you know, so I, I realize I can get going, and I, 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 sarcasm is not a healthy way to lead people. I understand that. I repent. Of, I repent. I'm sorry. Um, and so, 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 so don't, don't, what I'm about to talk about now is not just three or four little ways that we can be more effective, effective in witness for Jesus. Do you see how that just sort of reduces it down? I, there's this old French uh, pilot in World War II, and I don't even think he was a Christian, but he had this beautiful quote. His name was uh, uh, Saint Exupere. I don't know what his first name was, whatever, but he said, if you want to teach men, something along these lines, if you want to teach men to sail, don't teach them how to gather the wood and build a ship. Teach them to long for the vast and endless sea. And so 
I, I want to, that, that's kind of what it boils down to for me here is when I want us to think about what it means for us as Christians in community to be on mission, to be a better witness for Jesus in our city, in the world. I don't have three or four little pragmatic, pragmatic steps. I want us to behold the glory of God and I want us to, to get a sense for the greatness of the gospel and then I want us to be driven by that vision of God. And so, so I offer these three meager thoughts. What does it mean for us to be sent by Jesus? First, I think we need to, I think we need to repent of our self-absorption and our lack of burden for people that do not know Jesus. <laughs> um, I think I believe Wikipedia more than I believe the Bible sometimes. I have this little habit where I'll lay in bed at night with my iPhone and I'll watch a football game. And um, I like to know where players are from and where they went to college. And I like to know, because my dad was a coach, I like to know where guys got their coaching start. And so I'll Google their name. And I'll devour their personal history on Wikipedia. And I'll believe it. But when I read the Bible, I, sometimes I, I act like it's Peter Pan. Some little fairy tale. Jesus has saved me, but I... Do I really believe that eternity is real? Do I really believe the gospel that I preach? Do you, do you, do you, do you believe it? <laughs> do, I, do I really care about people that don't know Jesus? Do I, do I believe the Bible that says that to be outside of Christ is to suffer eternal separation from God forever. And later on in the Gospel of Mark, it says that, that separation from Jesus forever is this place called hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. <laughs> do, I, do, do we believe that? I mean, and when I... When I look at people in Columbus or in the city, I, I think I sort of have this very unbiblical sort of subconscious three categories. I think, of, I think of all the Christians I know that I think I can affirm are going to heaven and with Jesus forever. And then I think of like the bad people who in my sort of man-centered way deserve justice and hell and wrath. And then everybody else is sort of in this sort of middle category. Ah, he's a pretty good guy. Friends, there are no pretty good guys outside of Christ. I repent of my lack of burden for people that do not know Jesus. Why, 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 why are we like that? Is it some idol of comfort? You know, you get into a relationship with that person, that mailman, that worker, that clerk that barista, and it would just be so awkward to introduce the gospel in Jesus. So we just prefer comfort rather than discomfort and the gospel. 
So the first thing I need to do, and maybe you need to do, is to repent. The, the second thing that I would offer to us is that we need to, friends, and we hit on this just a moment ago, we need to know, like, we need to know the gospel. If you don't know the gospel well, and maybe you're a Christian, but you just feel inadequate in your ability to articulate it or explain it to somebody, don't stay there. We have numerous resources in that resource room. There's a little black book. I'm not sure if we have any. We might be sold out. If we are, we'll buy a whole bunch more. It's a little black book written by a young pastor in Kentucky, uh, and it's called What is the Gospel? You could read it in 45 minutes, and it's just a beautiful explanation of the truth of what God has done in Christ to reconcile people to himself and how all people need to respond to that truth. And it will equip you with, with just phrases and a sort of categorized truth of how to explain that to a friend, not to preach or to deliver a sermon, but how to just bring it up in conversation. Do you know the gospel? Can you articulate it? And here's the deal, is I think that, like, I'm pretty confident that I know the gospel but we need to not only know the gospel, we need to be wrecked and seized and consumed with the gospel. Because, because when you are wrecked and consumed and seized and mesmerized by the gospel, it does something like it has this transformative power of joy on your life. I mean, c- come on, imagine, imagine this. If, if we were all, if we just all got on a little field trip, and we were going across the street to go eat at Outback. And we were, I was leading you across the street. And, and, and as we were going, somebody was whipping around the corner there on Whitesville Road. And, and I was sort of unaware that there was a semi-truck whipping around. And, and before I could get run over by that car, Kwame snatched me and pulled me from getting run over by that car. It wouldn't just be, oh, wow, that was... Thank you, Kwame. We'd be like, whoa! He almost got killed! And he was saved. That would be a transformative thing. But you see, friends, the way we, most of us, view the gospel is like Jesus rescued us from the pain of stubbing a toe, not being rescued from death. And when we understand the gospel, it has this sort of transformative power of abiding joy. Friends, that's why we preach. That's why Christians need the gospel. Because again and again, Sunday after Sunday, they need to hear what Jesus has done because our hearts can get dim and our ears can grow weary. And we need to hear again that we weren't saved from a stubbed toe, but we were saved from death. And friends, when we seize that again and again and again, it has this transformative effect of joy. And then we don't need three little steps on how to do this or that. It flows like it flows out of us. We need to know the gospel and be seized by the gospel. And and thirdly, I'll end with this and it follows. We need to be controlled like our lives by the love of the gospel. Let me read 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not 
commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, like if the gospel has so transformed us that the world thinks we're crazy, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Listen to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. It controls, it controls my, the way I spend my money. It controls my choices of how to spend my time. It controls what I look at on the internet. It can controls everything. It controls, controls our very lives because we are not just saved to just sort of be cesspools and cul-de-sacs of grace and then to gather with other Christians and, you know, just be fed. We are saved and gathered together so that we would be on this strange, otherworldly, beautiful, all-satisfying mission to proclaim the gospel in our regular lives and controlled every aspect of our life, controlled by the gospel grace and love of Jesus. What does that look like? I, I don't know. Maybe it just looks like a simple invitation to that friend that you've known for some time to church or to your community group. I'm so encouraged again and again by meeting somebody. In fact, I had lunch Friday with a young officer going through training at Fort Benning. Now, he and his wife were already Christians, but here's just a perfect example of a sort of person who's sent on Jesus. He met, he and his wife were riding bikes up at Callaway Garden some time ago. Callaway Garden's about six months ago. They bumped into some people that I think had since moved away or weren't coming to Crosspoint at that time, but met them and said, oh yeah, well you should, you should check out Crosspoint. And not knowing whether or not those people were Christians or not, just sort of bringing it up, hey, come here, here, be gathered with this group of people, hear about Jesus. And then this group of, <laughs> this couple that wasn't at Crosspoint any longer, or maybe had moved away or whatever, then went into some place to eat, and Springer and Laura Susan were in there, and they heard, oh yeah, there's this couple. So Springer runs out and catches the guy and says, hey, just, just so you know, we meet on Sundays at 10.30, and this is where it is. Just a casual, I mean, how hard is that? And then this couple comes, and they've planted roots here, and been encouraged in the gospel here, and again, granted, they're already Christians, but I hear that all the time. How'd you hear about Crosspoint? Ah, oh, somebody just brought it up. And friends, it's not about just inviting people to church, understand that's not what I'm saying, but there's just sort of this regular rhythm of life where, where this, this group of ordinary, incomplete people are strangely compelled and controlled by the greater love of Jesus to just sort of have it on their lips and they, and they know the truth and they're able to, to bring it into conversations and, and it's like on their, on their mind all the time because they're, they're transformed with the message of the gospel and that's what they live for. God, make us like that. Make us like that, Jesus. I repent of my comfort. I repent of my fear of man, my fear of man that 
and it makes me want to be acceptable and palatable. I, I, I repent of my fear of man that, that causes me to cater too much to Christians that complain that are already here and be wondering whether or not they're going to stick around and I'm not on mission. Lord, I repent of that. Lord, we repent of our disbelief of the clear gospel and the reality of eternity. We repent. And God, we need to be refreshed again in the gospel. So Father, as we come around this communion table, would it be more than tradition? Would it be more than just monthly ritual as a faith family? But would we see afresh the fact that you didn't save us from a less than optimal life, but you saved us from death and separation forever where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And God, would that produce a humility and a joy and an earnestness so that the rest of our lives are controlled by the love of Christ and the gospel. God, would you do that even as we come around this table and as we remember what Jesus did, Lord? Would it seize us? Would it wreck us? Would it inform us? And would it give us a transformative joy? Father, would you do that? And then would you give us the endurance for a marathon of life on mission, not just to be motivated by an emotional message for a couple weeks, but Lord, would you give us the endurance for a life that is set on mission for Jesus? Would you do this, I pray? And Father, in your kindness for people that are in this room that are not yet believers, Lord, even in this sort of family talk, would you, would you give them grace to turn from themselves and trust in Jesus? And friend, if that is you right now, like don't require of yourself complete understanding. You're not saved by your faith. You're not saved by your own strength and understanding. You're saved by the object of even your weak, weak faith, and that's Jesus who is mighty to save. So look to him now. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust you as my only hope, my only hope. Do that even now, friend. Father, would you, would you give us those kind gifts? And would you be glorified? And, and would your people be encouraged? as we come around your table. In Jesus' name, amen.